So right after I got out of college, I landed a job at a Fortune 500 company in Louisville, Kentucky. My wife is from Louisville. I'm from the other side of the river in Southern Indiana. And it's a great company. I was excited to work for them. And apparently they were glad to have me working for them because they wanted to send me to Dallas for a week-long meeting. And I was excited. I was young. I was ambitious. And I had never flown on a plane before. And so I was like, this is going to be great. I get to do all the things at once. And so I, re- I still remember buying my ticket so I could sit by the window. And it was a beautiful day. We were going to fly to Dallas, Texas. And I remember shortly after the plane took off, I was living life several thousand feet in the air. And I thought, this is amazing. Beautiful flight. Everything went according to plan. And then on the return flight, we had to stop into St. Louis from Dallas to St. Louis, St. Louis to Louisville. And I'm a pretty chatty social guy. Surprise, surprise, right? And so I sat down next to somebody and I start talking to this guy and I learned that he travels for work often. And so we strike up a conversation and I just start asking him all the questions that I ask people like, what's that like? And where have you been last? And yada, yada. Well, about an hour before we landed in St. Louis, the pilot comes on overhead and he says, ladies and gentlemen, I just want you to know we're going to be landing in the middle of the storm in St. Louis, but it's okay. We're going to get you on the ground safe and sound. I just wanted you to know. And so I looked to my new friend, the professional traveler. I'm like, should I be concerned? He's like, no, they give us those things all the time. You'll be fine. They're just wanting us to know. So we sit down and have our seatbelts on. It'll be fine. Well, let's fast forward to our landing. We are flying in the darkest clouds I have ever seen. The wind is blowing. The plane is bobbing. And just so you know, planes aren't supposed to fly like this, but this is what the wings were doing. And I was like, can it, are those going to fall off? Are we okay? And there was lightning and there was thunder. And so I turned to my, my new friend, the professional traveler. I'm like, I'm pleased this guy's going to have to encourage me because I'm going to lose it. And I look over to say, hey, is this normal? And this was the look on his face. Look out the window. Like sheer terror. And I was like, okay, cool. We're going to die together today, me and you on this trip to St. Louis. And so thankfully we got on the ground. Everything was fine. And it's always awkward when people clap, but it just seemed appropriate on this day. We were like, thank you, God. Thank you, pilot. Somebody buy that guy dinner. Now I like storms. I like watching storms roll in. I love seeing lightning at night. It's fascinating to me, but I did not enjoy being in the middle of that storm on that plane on that day. And I think as a general rule, we like to try to avoid storms in our life, especially when they're dangerous. But today in the book of Acts, we are gonna find the apostle Paul trapped in an actual storm. And I want you to pay attention to how he responds in the midst of it all, okay? So if you have a Bible, I wanna invite you to turn to the book of Acts chapter 27. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles under some of the seats around the room and you can take one of those home as our gift to you. Now, Acts 27 is the second to last chapter in the book of Acts, which means we're wrapping things up in this year-long series next week. But today in Acts 27, here's what we find. The apostle Paul is traveling on a ship headed towards Rome, but he is not traveling as a VIP and he is not traveling on a luxury cruise liner. He is traveling on an Egyptian grain ship and he is a prisoner waiting to stand trial in Rome. And and on top of all of that, the ship that he is on gets caught in a horrific, a terrible storm. And what we're gonna see is that everybody on board that ship, they had lost all hope. There was no hope of survival. But Paul, on the other hand, he displayed an unshakable hope and faith that makes no sense apart from his relationship with God. Now, here's my question to you. Wouldn't you like to have that kind of hope and peace? That no matter what you face, you're just, you're at peace. And you think, I can do this. We can do this together, right? Well, 
how did Paul do it? That's the question. How did he do it? And is it possible for normal people like me and you to experience that kind of peace in the middle of crisis, a peace that passes all understanding? Well, I believe it's possible. Paul's going to show us how, and we're going to get to all that in just a moment. But let me remind you how he got into the situation that he is in, okay? So for the last 12-ish years of Paul's life, he traveled all around the Roman Empire. This is what we've been studying for the last several weeks. And he was sharing his faith in Jesus. He was planting churches city by city everywhere he went. And late in his career, he made a decision that was popular with no one. He's the only one that, that said, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go to the sacred city of Jerusalem. And everybody was like, it ain't gonna be good. And when he showed up, it was not good. There was an angry mob of Jewish people that were ready to have him killed because they thought he was a heretic. So they had him, they didn't kill him, but they had him arrested by the Roman authorities. And they were like, we don't think that this guy's guilty. He's innocent. We don't know what to do with him. But as the trials played out, it, it was determined that he was gonna get to go to Rome to make his case to Caesar, which is exactly what Paul wanted to have happen. Because Caesar was the most powerful man in the world. And he wasn't just trying to make his case to Caesar. He wanted to share his faith in Jesus with Caesar. So he was gonna get what he wanted, but first he's gonna to have to survive this storm at sea. So let's just jump into Acts chapter 27, one, and I want you to see how this story plays out. Acts chapter 27, verse one says this. When it was decided that we would set sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from a place that starts with an A, about to sail for ports along the coast of the, I, try, I practiced it all week, I can't say it. <laughs> uh, ports along the coast of the province of Asia. And we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. Now, you might think, well, what's going on there? There's some really important details here. First of all, pay attention to the word we. This is a pattern that we see take place, or it shows up in Paul's writing, or I'm sorry, Luke's writings in the second half of the book of Acts because Luke is saying, I was traveling with Paul. I'm the guy that's writing the book of Acts. I was traveling along with him. So that's important. Hold on to that detail. Plus we learn, we meet a few different people. We meet a Roman centurion named Julius. And I want you to keep him in mind because he's gonna come up on a couple of different occasions. And we meet this guy named Aristarchus. And actually he shows up on several different occasions throughout the New Testament. We meet him for the first time in Acts 19. He, like Luke, was a traveling companion and a helper of Paul. And so again, if you're wondering, okay, well, that's good to know, but why does this matter? Well, here's why it matters. Luke, the writer of Acts, is gonna give us a firsthand account of this story. This isn't like once upon a time, he was like, this is what we did. This is what we saw. This is where we went. And in Acts and, uh, verse 37, he gives us a really specific detail. He says this, altogether, there were 276 of us on board that ship. Now, that's interesting because as far as we know, only Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus were the only followers of Jesus. There were 273 people on board that did not follow Jesus. They were in the minority. And remember, Paul is not a VAP. He's traveling as a prisoner. He's awaiting to stand trial. Now, all of that ties into the rest of the story. Look at verse seven. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving at Nidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete opposite of Salmon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. 
Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the day of atonement. So look at the words, listen to the words that Paul uses to describe this journey or that Luke uses to describe this journey. We made slow headway. The wind didn't allow us to hold our course. We moved with difficulty. Much time had been lost. Things had become dangerous. I mean, this sounds like the last time I took my family to the beach. Nothing went according to plan. It was hard. It was difficult. It was like, oh, this is stressful. That's the trip that they're on right now. And on top of that, Luke, or yes, Luke gives us another important detail. In verse nine, he says it was after the day of atonement. So I want you to look at this map. This map shows us kind of how they were sailing. You'll notice that they were sailing along the coastline here. And the Day of Atonement is a really important Jewish festival and holiday. Okay, it takes place around this time of the year, late September to mid-October. In fact, if I remember correctly, the attack on Israel a few weeks ago took place on the Day of Atonement. It's happening this time of the year, okay? That's important because everyone knows that this time of the year from September to November, everyone knew this at the time, you do not wanna sail in these seas. It is a very dangerous and deadly time to sail. And apparently even the apostle Paul knew this. Look at verse nine. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is gonna be disastrous and bring great loss to the ship and cargo and to our own lives. But the centurion, Julius, remember him, instead of listening to what Paul said, he followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Now, I love this because Paul, he is a prisoner. He is nobody. And he's like, hey, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but this isn't gonna be good. And they're like, hey, you're a prisoner. You need to sit down and shut up. I'm gonna to listen to the guy that owns the boat and the guy that drives the boat and you're neither one of them. Find your place in the corner, right? And here's the thing. We know this from Paul's life. He was a very experienced traveler. I read one source that estimates that Paul would have traveled about 7,000 miles in his ministry career, which is unheard of. Most people didn't venture out like 100 miles past their own home. So Paul knew what he was talking about. He was an experienced traveler. In his letter to the Corinthian church, he writes in 2 Corinthians 11 and said, just so you guys know, I have endured three shipwrecks and I have floated in the open sea for a day and a half. I mean, he understood when and where and how to sail. And so when he's like, hey, we shouldn't sail right now, he knew what he was talking about, but no one wanted to listen to him. And I think we're all gonna find ourselves in Paul's shoes at some point in time. We're not a decision maker, but we can see that there's trouble coming. And we're like, hey, I, I've been around the block a time or two. I don't think this is the best thing to do. And people are gonna say, we don't care what you think. We're gonna go on anyway. And you know, that's a tough place to be in, especially when you know there is a storm brewing on the horizon. Look at verse 14. Before long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. So now we learn they're not only in a storm, they are in the middle of a meteorological event known as a perfect storm. And this is where all the elements line up in just the right way or really the wrong way to bring about total disaster. They're traveling at the wrong time of the year. A cold front has pushed in. There's hurricane force winds. It's cold. It's rainy. I mean, it is a perfect recipe for disaster. And look, look at how bad things get. In verse 17, the sailors pass ropes under the ship to hold it together. 
because they were afraid they were going to hit ground and the ship was going to explode. Verse 18, we took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. So can you imagine being in a storm at sea that was so bad that literally people are holding it together? This giant ship with ropes, hoping to keep it together. And it was so bad that they had to throw cargo overboard so they didn't, so they could stay afloat. They didn't flip over. They didn't drown. That sounds pretty horrifying. And look at verse 20. When neither sun nor stars had appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we, who's we? Luke and everyone else finally gave up all the hope of being saved. Now, I appreciate that Luke, a follower of Jesus, is just keeping it real. He was like, it was bad. We were, we were goners. We were waiting for the storm and the sea to just swallow us whole. So that was Luke and everyone else's experience on the ship. But I want to pause because I wonder how many of us can relate to something like that in our life right now, because life's a little rocky. Things aren't going the way that we want. It feels like everything's getting ready to fall apart and the conditions are lining up just right for a perfect storm. And it wouldn't take much for there to be absolute disaster. It would be a layoff plus a recession, an unexpected health issue plus a job transfer, a relational meltdown plus a rejection letter. That would be disastrous. Now, I looked up the definition of a perfect storm this week, and this is how Cambridge Dictionary defines it. It's an extremely bad situation in which many bad things happen all at the same time. Okay, I don't want to be an alarmist, but when I read that, I thought of 2023, and I thought, oh, I think we might be in a perfect storm because there's political and social and financial, and racial chaos, you don't even have to go looking for it. It's just, it's there. Inflation is on the rise. Interest rates are sky high. The job market's volatile. Housing is ridiculous, and debt is out of control. We just came out of a worldwide pandemic, and there's talks of, hey, we should probably brace ourselves for more things like that in the future. There's chaos, and there's confusion over basic things like gender and sexuality. We argue about those things. There are reports of natural disasters and environmental concerns all over the world. And there's the war in Israel. There's the war in Ukraine. And those are just the ones that we know about that we're talking about. I mean, we live in a world that's coming unhinged. And like Luke and his traveling companions in Acts 27, we're doing our very best to hold the ship together. But man, the wind, it is just raging and the sea will not calm down. And I don't know about you, but I'm thinking like, how much more can we take? What, what else could possibly happen? Or better yet, let's just use Luke's words in verse 20. We finally gave up all hope of being saved. Now, if you haven't figured this out, life is guaranteed to be stormy. There are gonna be physical storms. There's gonna be relational storms and financial storms in life. But what do you do when those storms begin to attack your peace? And what do you do when they rob you of hope? That's the situation that Luke is describing in Acts 27. It's a real story. This with real people, this really happened. But I want you to pay attention to how he describes Paul's response in the midst of it all. Because we know how Luke felt. Verse 21, 
After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. Probably not the best time for an I told you so. Like everybody's getting ready to die. And it's like, hey, I, you, I hate to be the one to say it, but like, okay, I don't know that that was the best move, Paul. Verse 22, but now I urge you, keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. We're all gonna be safe, but only the ship will be destroyed. Now, I think Paul meant that as a comfort. But if you get on an airplane and the pilot says, hey, ladies and gentlemen, we're going down in a ball of fire but you're going to be fine. Are you going to be like, oh, he said it's going to be fine. We're fine, right? We're fine. I think Paul meant it to be comforting, but he's like, this ship's going to be destroyed. But look at verse 23. This is, this is the key. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I serve, serve stood beside me. This is like the third time this has happened in Acts where either an angel or Jesus himself stands beside Paul. And he said, do not be afraid. Paul, you must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Verse 25, so Paul says to them again for the second time, so take up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Verse 26, nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. So Paul's saying, you need to brace for impact because the storm's not gonna stop, but God is going to keep us safe. Now, I, I love this. In his book, Anxious for nothing, Max Lucado points out that when the storms of life hit, we focus on our boat. And why do we focus on our boat? Because it keeps us afloat. It's the thing that's keeping us above the water, above the storm. And Max points out that our boat might be our health, our marriage, our career, our finances. We're all floating on a boat, right? But here's the thing. What do you do when it becomes obvious that your boat ain't gonna make it? It's not gonna survive the storm. But here's what I want you to see. When everyone else on this ship gives up hope, Paul, who is a prisoner, he stands up and he leverages this whole thing as an opportunity to share his relationship with Jesus and the peace that he experiences with God. Look at verse 23. And I want you to pay attention to how he talks about his relationship with God. We looked at this just a second ago, but he says, last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and the God whom I serve. Because of his faith in Jesus, Paul knew that his relationship with God was secure. And so he could trust God in the middle of the chaos. And so here's what I want you to see. In the middle of this perfect storm at sea, it was gonna be a perfect opportunity for Paul to demonstrate and to practice and to experience and to share the peace of God and the presence of God in the midst of everyone else who had lost hope, who were living in a crisis. Look at verse 27. Here's an interesting detail that Luke gives us. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight, the sailors sensed that we were approaching land. Now, I love that Luke says, we were out there for 14 nights for two Weeks. I want you to imagine being lost at sea in potentially shallow water on a big boat in the middle of a storm with brutally cold hurricane force winds, with constant driving rain, dense cloud cover, little to no daylight, poor visibility. And I'm going to guess that that boat was kind of rocking like this and everybody was seasick. It would have been miserable. Look at verse 33. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. He said this, for the last 14 days, you have been in constant 
suspense. Have you ever been in a place of constant suspense and you, your body just will not let you eat? Paul says, that's where we're living. And, I, and you've gone without food and you haven't eaten anything. Listen to this. Now I urge you, take some food. You're gonna need it to survive. But not one of you will lose a single hair on your head. So the conditions, they were miserable. The situation was impossible. But Paul's faith in God was unshakable. He just trusted God is going to get us through this. And in the middle of the chaos, he's urging them to eat. He says, you're gonna need to eat so we can survive. And look at what he does. This is so weird. Verse 35, after he said this, in the middle of the wind and the rain and the waves, he took some bread and he gave thanks in front of them all. He broke it and he began to eat and they were all encouraged and they ate some food themselves. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I can picture this scene and I'm like, this is so odd. They're like worried about dying. And Paul's like, hey, everybody pull up a chair. It's time for us to have a little picnic. It seems so odd and out of place, except when you consider how many times Jesus did this very thing in the middle of a crisis in his ministry. In Matthew 14, we learn about a time that Jesus taught and all, there was this crowd of thousands of people and it was dinner time, and his disciples are like, Jesus, you need to send them home. We don't have any food. And Jesus is like, well, what do we have? They've got some scraps. Okay, so Jesus takes the scraps. So he does exactly what Paul does. He gives thanks to God. He begins to distribute the food and thousands of people are fed. A crisis is diverted. And then on the last night of his life, just hours before he is going to be arrested and beaten and killed, Jesus sits down with his disciples. Tensions are running high. And he takes bread and he breaks it. And he says, hey, when you eat, just remember me. And when you drink this cup, just remember what I'm about to do with a crisis looming on the horizon. Here in Acts 27, I think it's so interesting that Paul is purposefully following Jesus's example to share a meal as a way of making the peace and the presence of God tangible for the people around him that didn't know what else to do. They were, they were living in crisis mode. Look at verse 41. Now notice, just because Paul did all this, the, the storm did not stop. The ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow struck fast and would not move. And the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. I'm not a sailor, but all that tells me is the ship hit the sand. I mean, boom, kaboom, wood flying everywhere. What are we gonna do? If we finally hit, where do we, what are we gonna do next? And I would love so much if the very next verse, it said, and the apostle Paul yelled out in a loud voice, I told you so, but he doesn't. Look at verse 42. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and from escaping. But the centurion, remember Julius from verse one? He wanted to spare Paul's life and he kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to get to land. Verse 44, the rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. And in this way, in spite of a raging storm, in spite of absolute chaos and disaster, everyone reached the land safely, just as God had promised. Now, I think it's fascinating that God did not calm the storm for Luke. In fact, tensions were super high. There were people that could swim and they were swimming in the waves, in the, in the storm. There were people floating on boards. There were, there were soldiers that were ready to kill the prisoners because they didn't wanna be accountable for them. I mean, we're talking, this is crazy. 
But here's what's interesting. Paul did not calm the storm like Jesus, but because of his faith in Jesus, he had learned to stay calm in the midst of a storm just like this. And I don't know about you, I want that kind of peace. I mean, this is an amazing story. This would make for a great movie. And it's really tempting for us to read it and to say, oh, you know what? I believe it. I believe that it's true. And I'm gonna file it away in my brain as a cool historic event that I'm glad I didn't have to live through. But I think there's more to it. Because personally, I think in this story, Paul is showing us how to experience and how to practice the peace in the presence of God in the midst of actual storms that we're going to face. But here's what's cool. He doesn't just model it for us in Acts 27. He went on to write about how he did it and how we can do it. In Philippians chapter four, Paul is writing a letter to a church in Philippi that he helped plant. You can go back and read about it. I think in Acts 13, he's writing to his friends in Philippi. And this is what he says to them in Philippians chapter four, verse four. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all because the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition. The word petition means begging. By prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God that is beyond all human understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I'm going to guess that you're like me and you want that peace real bad. I want that peace for me. I want it for my wife. I want it for my kids. I want it for our country. I want it for our church. And did you notice he doesn't just say peace from God or peace with God, but the peace of God himself. And so I want you to do me a favor. I want you to get out your phone and I want you to take a picture of this verse. I've seen you fiddling around with them. I know they're out there. Just go ahead, take a picture of this verse and I'll tell you why. I want you to imagine what could happen if we, for one week, we read and we prayed through this verse. This is one of the first verses I memorized almost 20 years ago. It's one of the only verses I can still remember. I wrote it out this morning, almost by memory. And my goal is to look at this and, and to read it and to pray through it every day this week. And here's why. Because in this passage, Paul doesn't give us a formula. He gives us a pathway that we can follow one step at a time to pursue the peace of God. And I want you to pay attention to the very first step on this pathway. It's a very important step because Paul does not say, hey, step number one is you need to suck it up. Step number one is you need to try harder or you need to be a better version of you or you gotta at least fake it till you make it. That is not step one. What is step one? Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. But he doesn't just say rejoice. Don't just walk around with a fake smile on your face. You rejoice in the Lord. When we rejoice as followers of Jesus, when we rejoice in the Lord, we put Jesus ahead of everything else in our life, all the good stuff and all the bad stuff, all the things that we love and all the things that we hate, even the storms that we face. So he says, you rejoice in who he is and in what he has done for you. And think about what we've learned about Paul's life in the book of Acts. This is what he did. He was constantly rejoicing in the Lord. So that's step one on this pathway to peace. But the next step is a really hard one for me. He says, let your gentleness be evident to everyone. You know why this is hard for me? Because I think Paul is saying, hey, you don't get to be a control freak. You can't be an uptight jerk. 
You can't run around telling everybody, I told you so, you should have listened to me. Instead, you have to pursue a gentle spirit. And Paul tells us why. Because the Lord Jesus is near. He's with you. No matter where you are, no matter what storm you face, Jesus is there with you and he is providing the peace. So you need to pursue gentleness because people around you are watching. Would you rather be with a person that demonstrates gentleness or the opposite of gentleness, right? So when we pursue a gentle spirit and rejoice in the Lord, people are gonna naturally gravitate towards that because they want what we have. But if we're uptight, it's not gonna be evident. And then he goes on to the next step on this pathway. He says, don't be anxious about anything. Now, is that comforting to you? Oh, you silly people, don't be anxious. He doesn't say, don't be anxious about anything. He says, don't be anxious about anything. You pray about everything. You pray about everything because when you learn to pray about everything, you learn that prayer is as essential as breathing. And this is how God hears our prayers. He, we are putting him in control and saying, God, whatever you want. But he says, you pray with thanksgiving. And praying with thanksgiving means we thank God for what he has done. We thank God for what he's doing. We thank God for what he's, what we want him to do, what he's gonna do, what he's capable of doing. We thank him and we pray and guess where this destination leaves us, leads us. It leads us to a place where we experience the peace of God that passes all understanding. Now, what does that look like? Well, it looks like Paul on this ship in Acts 27. Everyone else has lost hope, but he's calm. And everything else, everyone else is coming unglued but he's at peace. He's comforted. It's, it's not a peace that we can explain. It's only a peace that we can share and we can experience with others. Now, I can think of one time in my life when I have experienced, uh, that's not true, but the time that stands out to me the most was when my mom passed away, experiencing this kind of peace. She went into the hospital completely unexpected. And three weeks into her hospital stay, she coded, she was put on a ventilator and we never got to talk to her anymore. And we were in shock. We were praying. We were begging God, heal her, help her, help us. And I watched my dad start to live out his faith in a way that was awe-inspiring. And I'll never forget our family meeting around a conference table. I hope none of you ever have to sit around this conference table. And the decision is, do we leave her plugged in or do we unplug her? Can her body make it? And we just decided we trust Jesus. She trusted Jesus. And we're gonna... We're gonna hand her over to him. And if he lets us have her, great. But if he takes her, even better. Now, I would give anything to have my mom here, anything. But all I can tell you is we experienced a peace that made no sense. And the, the, the nursing staff, they were like starting to check on us. Like, you guys okay? And we're like, we're good. Our other family members were like, how, what's going on? How are y'all doing this? And we're like, it, it, it was the peace of God in the worst moment of our life. I would never wanna go back, but I miss that kind of peace. I miss that kind of clarity. In John 16, 13, Jesus said this to his disciples. This is in his final hours. He says, I have told you these things so that in me, you may have peace because in this world, you're gonna have trouble. Jesus says, I'm not gonna like, I don't wanna fool you about it. You're gonna have trouble but I want you to take heart. I want you to have courage. 
because I have overcome the world. And what Jesus was telling his disciples is that through the power of the Holy Spirit, I wanna give you the peace that I had when I stood in front of my enemies who hated me. Jesus modeled peace that steadied his voice when he stood before Pilate and to know when to talk and when not to talk. And Jesus modeled peace that kept his thoughts focused and clear as he hung on a cross to carry out his heavenly father's will. That is the peace of God that passes all understanding. And so this week, I wanna invite you to pursue this pathway. Maybe you work on it a step at a time one step down that path at a time. We live in a stormy world. Guys, it's going to be stormier. We know the end of the story. It ends wonderfully, but before the ending gets here, it's pretty awful. And as followers of Jesus, we have an opportunity to pursue and to model and to share the peace of God that passes all understanding. Will it be easy? No. Will the wind blow? Yes. Will the waves keep crashing? Absolutely. But there will be a day that when Jesus will return to this earth and it'll all be worth it, or he'll take us to be with him. This is the hope that we have. This isn't a maybe. This is definite peace that we can have. But here's the other thing I want you to know. You can't experience the peace of God without having peace with God. And peace with God comes from trusting in his son, Jesus, his sacrifice for your sins on the cross your faith in what he has done to give you his righteousness. So God says, oh, you're my son, you're my daughter. If you're a follower of Jesus, I wanna encourage you to live out that peace. If you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, we're celebrating baptisms next week. Those two are very closely linked. Baptism is a representation of your faith in him. And so we wanna invite you to respond this morning. Maybe you need prayer. We, we all need prayer. Can we just go ahead and admit to that? Some of us are gonna be over here praying if you wanna join us. We'd love to pray through whatever you're going through in life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can have this kind of peace. I'm so thankful that Paul modeled it for us. And I'm thankful that he's given us a pathway that we can follow. Jesus, would you teach us to rejoice in you and all that we do? Would you remind us that you are close? Would you help us to pursue gentleness? Would you help us to pursue faithfulness? Would you help us to pray about everything and to cling to an attitude of gratitude? And would you help us to experience your peace so that in the midst of this crazy world, people would find faith in you, Jesus. That is our prayer. We love you. And we ask all of this in your powerful name. Amen.